obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So did you see the connection between verse 4 and verse 5? In verse 4, we learned that the Scriptures were written that we might have hope. And we hit hard on that last time. Hope is a wonderful virtue. We should long to be a hope-filled people. Uh, Hope is having an eager expectation, a longing, a deep desire for the good that God has promised to come. And so in the midst of the struggles of today, we remember the promises that have been made to us. We remember what is ahead for us, and we have hope. And according to verse 4, it is through the Scriptures that we find the endurance and the encouragement that give us hope. But now... Having just used those words to describe the Scriptures, Paul uses those same words again in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement. In other words, Paul wants us to see that while the Bible is a means of endurance and encouragement, God is the source. God is the one who gives It's not like the Bible is some sort of magic book with inherent superpowers just intrinsic to it. No. In fact, your Bible is just paper and ink and glue and some sort of cover holding it together. Or you might be reading the Bible on your smartphone or on your your iPad. There's nothing supernatural about that in and of itself. But it is God who works through the truths of the Bible to give you endurance and encouragement. When when He causes your mind to understand the promise and causes your heart to embrace the promise, you suddenly find that Monday isn't so hard after all. Yes, the trials that you might be going through are difficult, but you can make it because God is giving you endurance as you interact with the truths that He's given you in His Word. So He is giving you encouragement as He tells you that Jesus is coming back for you. God gives you encouragement as He tells you that heaven is ahead for you. 
God gives you encouragement as he tells you through the Bible that the sufferings of this world cannot compare with the glory to be revealed. And as he causes your heart to believe that and to embrace that and to well up in that, you can persevere and endure in your walk with Christ. We, say, we see the same truth in the fact that what we have in verse 5 is something of a prayer of blessing. What Paul longs for this church in Rome to have isn't something that they can just make happen on their own. Paul is acknowledging here that God must give it. And so Paul instructs these Christians. Paul exhorts them to obey. But then he prays that God would give them the grace. None of these commands in the book of Romans, none of these exhortations, none of these instructions amount to anything if God doesn't actually give the heart to obey. And this God does, and He does so by His Spirit through the Scriptures. So here is a word this morning to the person in this room who maybe feels like you just can't keep going. Uh, This is a word for the Christian who feels so beat up by trials that you're ready to give up the fight. You're ready to just stop trusting and obeying Jesus. And you'd rather just go drown your sorrows in drunkenness or pornography or Netflix binging. And the word here is that God is able to give you endurance When you think you can't make it another day, when you can't make it another hour, you don't know how you're going to put your next step in front of the next. God is able to empower you. God is able to strengthen you. Run to Him in prayer. Don't run to wickedness. Run to God. Don't run to the poisoned wells of self-pity and self-indulgence. Run to the Bible And ask God, as you read, to give you encouragement, to give you endurance. Ask, as Paul prays here, that God would give you a heart so warmed by His promises, so so captivated by the future coming to you, that you can find the strength to carry on. And so a runner in a marathon may feel like he is about to collapse. He says, I can't can't keep going. I've run too far. I've run too hard. I'm not going to make it. And then he turns the corner and he sees the finish line. And suddenly there's this new surge of energy. Well, so also the Bible is God's way of showing us what's ahead. The Bible is God's way of showing us that the finish line is closer than we think. That very soon... We will know a kind of joy in Christ beyond anything we've ever tasted or imagined in this world. And as you see that finish line presented to you in the Bible, you find new endurance. I can go a little further. By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the encouragement and the endurance and the hope that Paul talked about in these verses, it is open to you too. 
But the door is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Every promise of grace in the Bible only comes to us as we believe on Christ and rest on Christ. All of God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Christ is everything to you, then all of God's gracious promises are yours. And if Christ is nothing to you, then none of God's gracious promises are yours. And there's no, there's no middle ground. You either embrace Christ and love Christ and with Him comes all the glorious promises of God or you reject Christ and you are outside of every gracious promise of God. So, if you want hope and endurance and encouragement, have you embraced Christ? Is He your Savior? Now, as we look at verses 5 through 7, I want us to use three headings. First, I want us to see the command itself, the command that Paul is giving us. Second, I want us to see the motivation for the command. And then finally, I want us to see Paul's explanation of the command. So first, the command itself. And in these three verses, 5, 6, 7, Paul is building up to it. He's already taught us the same idea in various other ways in the last many paragraphs. But now he is summing it up in this one climactic chief command of verse 7. Welcome one another. Welcome one another. Uh, This word welcome means to receive one another, to accept one another, to embrace one another. Paul is saying, don't let disagreements over non-essentials keep you from experiencing true brotherhood, true partnership in the gospel, and in the mission that God has given us. Maybe you're a Gentile Christian and the others around you in your church are Jews. Maybe you're a Jewish Christian and the other Christians around you in your church are Gentiles. Welcome one another. Maybe you have different convictions about how to live a life that honors Jesus than some of the others in your church. Maybe others in your church are eating meat and drinking wine and you think you shouldn't do that and that's dishonoring to Jesus. Nevertheless, welcome one another. Welcome them into your heart. Welcome them into your life. Welcome them into your affections. Uh, Just like there may be a welcome mat in front of your doorway outside of your home that tells visitors as they approach your house that you are eager to receive them, so we ought to have the kind of attitude and behavior towards one another that says, brother, sister, whatever our differences, I am eager to know you and to share your concerns and to carry your burdens and to love you, and to worship alongside you, and to be a partner with you in the mission God has given us. It would be a tragedy for someone to come as a visitor to this church and to feel that they are not welcome here. May that never happen. But it is far more tragic 
If there are people in this body, fellow believers, fellow church members who still feel as if they are unwelcome in the hearts and the lives of other members of this church. Let's examine ourselves. Have we closed ourselves off to anyone in this church? Have you closed your heart to anyone in this church? Do you avoid fellowship with them? By your words and by your actions, is there a do not disturb sign on your life towards them? The command here is simple, it's clear, we are to welcome. We are to be eager to sit down with anyone in this church, to give them our attention, to take their concerns to heart, to hear them, to help them, to love them, and to serve Jesus alongside them. And by the way, notice just how welcoming we are to be. Because verse 7 says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's the standard that's set for us. Here is how open, here is how willing we are to be towards one another. Matthew Henry says this, he says, can there be a more cogent argument? Has Christ been so kind to us And shall we be so unkind to those that are His? Was He so forward to entertain us? And shall we be backward to entertain our brethren? Christ has received us into the nearest and dearest relations to Himself. He has received us into His fold, into His family, into the adoption of sons, into a covenant of friendship, yea, into a marriage covenant with Himself. He has received us, though we were strangers and enemies and had played the prodigal, into fellowship and communion with Himself. That's the standard. As Christ has welcomed you, welcome one another. So that's the command. Notice the motivation for the command. It's verse 7 again. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Here it is. For the glory of God. Your first motivation is Christ himself and how he has welcomed you. And when Christ welcomed you into his family and into his friendship and into communion with him, he did so for the glory of God. There's a comma there at the end of verse 7 in the ESV. That's a translator's choice. I think it's fine, um, but don't miss this. Jesus welcomed you for the glory of God. Yes, Jesus loved you and died for you and throughout eternity intercedes for you. But Christ's love for you is not his highest love. It is the love of Jesus for his Father that is his highest love. And when Jesus set his love on you, and when he chose to give his life for you, this was ultimately the grand way in which the Son of God was glorifying his Father. Through the cross, 
Through the redemption of sinners, the marvelous grace of God is put on display so that throughout endless ages, angels and saints will alike stand amazed and wonder at the glory of God. For all eternity, the grace and mercy of God the Father will be loved and adored and worshipped because of what the Son did. The son obeyed his father. The son fulfilled the mission his father had given to him. And Jesus fulfilled the mission given to him, propelled ultimately by love for his father. Does Jesus love you? Yes, more than you can know. Has Jesus welcomed you? Absolutely, if you're a believer. You're one of his. But ultimately, you are a trophy of God's grace. And Jesus loves you For God's sake. Jesus loves you for his father's sake. All love is to be Godward. All love is ultimately to stream towards God. I am to love my wife for God's sake. And I am to love my children for God's sake. And I am to love you for God's sake. And I am to love the lost and the poor and the oppressed for God's sake. At a lower level, I am to love mountains and juicy hamburgers and midday naps and a to-do list completed for the glory of God. The streams of our loves may go in all different directions, but they are ultimately all to come together in the great river of love that reaches to God. Jesus is our example. You should not be offended that Jesus loves you for His Father's sake. You should be thankful that He loves you for His Father's sake. If Jesus loved you for your own sake, apart from God, He would be a sinner An idolater, less than God, he could not be your Savior. If Jesus loved you for your own sake, apart from God, it would be a wicked love. A love that separates the creation from the Creator. It would be making an idol out of God's creation. It's not the love Jesus has for you. The love Jesus has for you is a higher love, a purer love, a more powerful love. It is a holy love. It is a Godward love. Jesus has welcomed you into his kingdom, into his family, into his heart, into oneness with him. And he has done so for the glory of God. And now you and I are being called to welcome each other into each other's hearts, lives, affections for the glory of God. We should love each other. And our love for each other ought to be immense. But ultimately, I am to love you as an expression of my love to God. And you are to love me as an expression of your love to God. I am to welcome you into my life and into my heart and into my concerns and into my prayers for the glory of God. You are to welcome me into your life and your affections and your concerns and your prayers for the glory of God. Because it turns out that the goodness and the greatness and the mercy of God is best seen when people who used to be selfish, arrogant sinners are suddenly welcoming each other into one another's lives. 
When people who are different from one another. When people who sometimes annoy one another and frustrate one another. When people who see things differently, one's drinking wine, the other says, I would never drink wine, and they're able to welcome one another. It shows the glory of God. So that's the command, welcome one another, the motivation for the glory of God. What we have in verses 5 and 6 is the explanation for the command. You see, Paul builds up to the command by explaining how welcoming one another can help us as a body better glorify God. The the critical bridge is the word therefore at the beginning of verse 7. Does everybody see that? Verse 7, the word therefore. In other words, Paul says, because of what I've just explained in verses 5 and 6, because of what I just said in verses 5 and 6, therefore, do verse 7. So verses 5 and 6 are the, the, the explanation for verse 7. So what does verses 5 and 6 say? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the word such in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. In other words, the goal that Paul has in mind as we put aside our differences and welcome each other is a kind of harmony, a degree of harmony, such harmony that will allow us to more unitedly glorify God together. So what is the aim? The aim is that we as a church would glorify God. That's the aim. We exist for the glory of God. Whatever else we might say about our church, this must be the ultimate purpose. This must be the umbrella over all we do, the banner under which we march together. We exist to glorify God. And the idea is that God is more glorified in our lives and in our church when we are living and worshiping and serving together in harmony. Conflict. Division. Disconnectedness. These hinder the service and the worship of God. And they do not honor God. Those are the ways of the world. Last Sunday evening, we looked at the subject of this new social justice movement and this popular idea called intersectionality. And we saw that this view of the world is marked by the way it divides people. By the way, it separates people into categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories. Maybe you're a female, that's one category. Maybe you're a, a white female, that's a smaller group. Maybe you're a lesbian white female, that's an even smaller group. Maybe you're a wealthy lesbian white female. And suddenly you're divided from poor lesbian white females. You're divided from straight poor white females. You're divided from people who are not white. You're divided from men. And you just keep being divided into these categories until it's just you and everybody else is different from you and everybody else is against you. 
This is the nature of worldly thinking. This is the nature of sin. It divides. It disconnects. It pits people against people. The gospel unites. Colossians 3.11 is a radical statement. Paul says, here, that is in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. It doesn't mean that you cease to be who you are with all of your particular categories. But it does mean that as Christians, our chief identity is found in our belonging to Jesus. We are one with Christ. And since all who are believers are one with Christ, we are the same in what matters most of all. We are so united in our unity to Jesus that all of our differences just don't matter that much anymore. So that in the early church, a slave owner and his slave could sit at the same table as brothers and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Encouraging one another. Loving one another. In the early church, the slave might have been an elder in the church. And his slave owner might have been a member benefiting from the leadership and the teaching of his own slave. Do do you see how radical this is? Do you see how the harmony created by the gospel shows the power of God to bring together all kinds of people and love and peace and worship and mission Paul uses the phrase with one voice. Do you see that? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And most commentators see that as a metaphor. They seem to think that Paul isn't actually talking about us bringing our voices together into one voice. But this is a metaphor for us being united as a church. That together as a church, we bear one witness to the world. That united together in harmony with one another, having welcomed each other into true fellowship, into true partnership, we as a church speak with one voice to the world about the glories of our God. So think about how that would have been true for this church in Rome. In that church, Greco-Romans... And ethnic Jews were to get along with one another, which was unheard of in that culture. Not only were they to get along, they were to see each other as brothers and sisters, as family, nearer than their blood family. They were to see each other as fellow servants of Christ. They were to welcome each other into each other's homes, lives, affections, concerns, so that they're praying together, they're worshiping together, they're serving Jesus together. And when unbelievers saw that Jewish man and that Gentile man, and they're supposed to hate each other, and here they are praying together. It's a 
powerful statement. It's one voice about the glory of God and His ability to take down the divisions of sin. Now, while I agree that these words uh, can be read as a metaphor, I don't think Paul means them only as a metaphor. That is, I think Paul also has in mind the literal meaning that when we as Christians are in harmony together, we can, with one voice, glorify our God, meaning we can pray together and we can sing praises together. Is it not true that division hinders corporate worship? Especially when we understand that worship as a church body is to be a corporate experience. So that when we sing, it's not supposed to be each of us standing beside each other having our own individual me and God experiences. Corporate worship, like what we have done this morning, is not about me having a me singing to God and interacting with God and I'm standing by you and you're doing the same thing, but we're having our own separate individual worship moments. That, that's not the picture. In the Bible, the picture is that in corporate singing, it's us together as a body, worshiping God. We are the choir, and God is the audience, and we as one choir sing to God. Well, if I am living a life in which I am actively loving you and caring for you, uh, seeking to know and and. and intercede for you before God about your concerns and you're doing the same for me. Do you see how that makes that time of corporate worship all the sweeter, all the more wonderful? Uh, Ephesians 5.19 tells us to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord your God with all your heart. So when we worship, there's both this vertical aspect, we're making melody to the Lord, and there's this horizontal aspect, we're singing truth out of love into one another's ears. If you don't care for me, I don't want to hear what you're singing into my ears. If you don't have time for me in your busy life, if you have no regard for me, why, when you're suddenly singing to me about these truths that are necessary for my soul, why am I going to listen? And vice versa. But when a church is together, welcoming one another, opening up their homes and their lives to one another, suddenly when we gather and we're lovingly singing these truths into one another's ears, it causes us to, to hear, to be changed. And it's equally true for the corporate prayer life that we have as a church. We're to be praying together. Even when one person is up here leading in the prayer, the Bible encourages all of us to be praying together as one body. That's why we encourage that hearty amen at the end. So that we can say, hey, we're praying together. We're all in agreement on this prayer. Though, of course, is there going to be great agreement in unity if we're living lives of disregard and disconnectedness to one another? So for the glory of God, that we might honor him with one voice, let us be at harmony with one another. How? By putting aside our disagreements, putting aside uh, those things that divide us over non-essentials, and welcoming one another into our hearts and lives. Paul's explanation 
in verses 5 and 6 is that through welcoming each other, we are able to obtain such harmony in our church that we can glorify God with one voice. By having each other in our lives, opening up our hearts, our time, our homes, our life experiences to one another, we grow in this kind of harmony. Have you ever thought about how essential harmony is when you have people on a mission together? Think about how difficult your life would be if your body parts were not working in harmony with one another. Imagine your left foot trying to go one direction and your right foot trying to go the other direction. Imagine if there's a conflict between the bottom half of your body and the upper half of your body. One trying to go one way, one trying to go the other. Um, Imagine if there's a conflict between your right hand and your face so that your right hand keeps slapping you. In our bodies, it is our brain that works to bring everything into harmony. Your brain unites all the various parts of your body into one purpose, into one mission. One of the quickest ways for a business or an agency or an organization to get into a mess is if they have one part of the organization doing one thing, another part of the organization doing something else, and they're not talking to each other. They're not cooperating together. They're not helping each other. And they end up crossing purposes. And the result is conflict and failed objectives and hurt feelings and blame being thrown all around. Harmony in the local church is created as we live in Christ's love for us. And then seek to overflow in love towards one another in very practical, self-denying, serving ways. And it is our shared unity in the gospel. It is our shared experience as forgiven sinners that allows us to welcome each other no matter how different or broken or messed up we may be. Hear this. No matter what is going on in your life or my life, No matter what kind of sins are plaguing our lives or how foolish our decisions have been, we are still to be welcoming one another because we have been welcomed and forgiven in Christ. And then through the Bible and the teaching that we receive here at church and the fellowship that we pursue together, our harmony should only increase And we should find ourselves more and more united around a common faith and a common mission under common leadership, having made a common commitment to one another through our church covenant. And this harmony glorifies God. And with this, we need to be clear. Our harmony with one another in this church depends first and foremost on each of us having found harmony with Jesus Christ. In fact, it does not matter if we are the most united church in the world, if we're united together, but we're not united with Christ. There are lots of churches where people are in a lot of harmony together, but the church isn't a true church. And they're busy doing things that Christ would not have them 
to do. It is incumbent upon us all that we first make peace with Christ and submit to Christ and are walking in accordance with Christ. And it's in our relation to Christ that we find our unity with one another. It is only through Christ that we have harmony with God. There is no peace with God for the rebel who is continuing to rebel. Salvation is offered through Jesus Christ to those who turn and repent. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, your first concern is not your relationships with the other people in this room. Your first concern is your relationship with God. Fix that. Get that right through Jesus. And you'll become truly united to these people in this room. You can pursue the harmony we're talking about. Romans 5.1 says, Peace with God comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. So unbeliever, turn from your sins and run to Christ. Believers, let us work on this. Welcoming each other into our lives, into our hearts, into our affections for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.